Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. I think we may spend most of our time in 13. Uh, But let's read the context again and ask the Lord for his blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Romans 6.1 Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Amen. Father, again, we ask this morning that you would be pleased to meet with us, teach us your word by the light and illumination of your Holy Spirit who dwells with your people and in your people. Father, Thank you that this is the word of the Lord. Your word is forever settled and it's established. It is not changing. Every word of God is pure, refined, as in the fire, seven times. Lord, I pray that your word would have its due effect in our hearts this morning. That we would be a people that are increasingly given over to our God. Worshiping him, loving him, fellowshipping with him, and with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we're nearing uh, the end of the first half of this chapter in terms of Paul's progression of thought. And what we've seen as the big truth in this chapter is that um, we are dead to sin. We've died to sin. Paul says that in the form of a question um, in verse 2. And as you remember, he is addressing this question of lawlessness that really an opponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ would raise. To say, if we have such an abounding grace, why not just sin? Sin uh, as much as we like because God will only put his grace on display more so as we sin. And Paul says, that's an impossible position for a Christian to take. A Christian does not take that position ever. Doesn't even ask that question because it shows a complete misunderstanding of grace and really a love in the heart for sin. 
And that is not the characteristic of a child of God. So Paul says, you've died to sin. Here's the cardinal truth you need to remember and remind yourself of again and again. But, in so much that sin has died, we've learned that what that means is that the reign of sin has ceased in our lives. Not that sin has been entirely eradicated from our lives, but that the reign, the domination that sin used to have over each one of us because of the inherited corruption of Adam, his sinful nature, and our own sinful deeds. All of that is um, set aside in Christ in this sense. We're no longer under the power of sin. We are now under the reign of grace. So what do we do with this sin that hasn't been completely eradicated, that still has a presence in our lives. The effects of corruption, you could say, that still reside in our mortal bodies, our bodies that are given to decay and corruption because of sin. There's something that we must do to deal with that, and that is now the instruction that Paul has brought us to in verses 11, 12, and 13. And we learned that this... uh, path to victory in the Christian life, this strategy that the Lord has for us to live victoriously over sin in the light of this truth that sin does not dominate us anymore, all starts with doctrine. It starts with truth. First, we must know the truth. And that's why Paul repeats himself time and time again in chapter 6 to say, know this truth. Don't you know that you died to sin? Knowing that Christ Uh, Our old man was crucified with Jesus that the body of sin might be deprived of its power, its absolute authority. Knowing that Christ, in verse 9, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, he's not under the dominion of death anymore. And therefore, because you are united to him by faith, neither does sin reign over you and neither does death reign over you anymore. You are in Him. You've died with Him. You've been buried with Him. Now you're risen with Him spiritually. You're alive. The fact that you believe the gospel, that you can recognize Jesus as your Lord and Savior, shows that you've been raised from the dead spiritually. Brother and sister, praise the Lord for that because that is a work of grace. That is an evidence that you are united to Him, that you are following in His steps. So we must know this truth. We talked about this last week in terms of three categories um, that the Reformers put on what they defined as true faith. Noticia, essentia, and fiducia. Noticia, we must take notice of the truth. We must acknowledge it. Essentia, we must assent to the truth mentally. We must believe it in our minds. But most importantly, fiducia. It must become the solid conviction of our hearts to know these things and to appropriate them in our lives. So, we must have this confidence that starts with knowledge, but he doesn't leave us there. Knowledge always leads to action. So now we get to the practical part of Paul's instruction in verse 12 and 13. And last week we started with this. We we took the first of these admonitions or these commands that Paul gives where he said, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And what we learned is that the only place where sin, sin still resides in us 
is in our mortal bodies, is in the components of our flesh, our constitution. That is, our limbs, our hands, our feet, our eyes, even our brains. All of that is part of our bodies. And he says, don't let sin reign there anymore because it doesn't. The old man has died. He's been crucified with Christ. But he's going to call out. That, that old man, like a tyrant, is still going to speak and even yell. And he is going to demand that you obey him. He's going to come knocking on the door. That's the idea of that you should obey it in its lusts. That you should act like a porter listening for the door every time sin knocks to obey it, to go answer it. And he says, don't answer the door. Sin is going to knock. Do not answer the door. But he continues with the instruction because the natural question that would result from that is, well, how do I do that, Paul? How do I just ignore that? Do I just show great patience and, and wait it out? Or is there something else that I can do? So he continues his instruction here with the second negative. And I want you to look at this this morning with me in verse 13. The outline for today is very simple. It's two things. Stop presenting your members. There's the first thing. Stop doing something. And the second thing is start presenting yourselves. So stop presenting your members and start presenting yourselves. Here's the first thing he says in stop presenting your members. Verse 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now notice, first of all, when he begins, verse 13, he says, and do not, in the Greek, he's saying neither. He's saying here's an additional continuing negative from verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Neither present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. And the word he uses for present is an interesting one. It means to present a person to another for seeing and for questioning. It means to put someone before someone else for observance, for an offering. It means to yield or to dedicate one to another. Or you could say it this way, to put one wholly at the disposal of another. That's the word present. Neither present. Do not yield, offer, dedicate your members. And the tense that he uses here is the continuous present. So I think the New American Standard and the LSB, the Legacy Standard, do a really good job in interpreting the first part of this verse. They say, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. That's right. There's the sense of continuous action. Do not go on doing this. Well, what are we doing? Putting forward the members the literally parts or the components of the human body. Um, the word just means parts. But Paul clarifies, um, actually in chapter 12 and in other places, that he's talking about parts of the body. In Romans 12, for example, verses 4 and 5, he says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ." and individually members of one another. So these members, like as we talked about with mortal body, the mortal body it consists of members, of parts. So that includes all the limbs of the body, but also it includes things we may not think of as much like our speech. 
our tongues, our lips, our mouths. It includes our hearing, our eyes, and even our faculties, which would be our minds, our thinking, our hearts, our emotions, and our wills. Our wills. So all of that is uh, summed up in this understanding of members of the body. And what Paul is doing here as he moves from verse 12 to 13 is he's narrowing the scope. So he starts with the whole body, the mortal body, and he says, don't let sin reign there. But in verse 13 he says, do not present the members, the parts of that body. So you see he's narrowing scope. And he says, don't present the members of your body as instruments. Now, it's the word opla in Greek. He's not talking about musical instruments. It's not you know, saxophones and flutes. He's talking about weapons. Weapons is the word for instruments. It's, it's always used in the context of warfare. Don't present the parts of your body as weapons of unrighteousness to sin. Now, I hope that as we go through this, you, um, you appreciate that it's, it's important to look at the original languages and, and, and do some dissection of the text because you can, you can have different understandings just based on the way things are translated, but it may not be what the original is intending. When Paul says, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, he's not using sin in the verb form, as an action. In other words, don't present your instruments, the parts of your body, as weapons to do something. He's saying, don't present it to sin, the noun. The noun. Now, I didn't do very well in fourth grade grammar, but I knew this, that nouns were persons, places, things, important things. That's a noun. So sin is really a personification here. He's personifying sin. He started to do this back in verse 21 of chapter 5 where he says, so that as sin reigned in death, sin is like a monarch. It's like a tyrant who is reigning on the throne of the hearts of all the unconverted of us before we come to Christ. That's what Paul is saying he's like. He's like a tyrant. And he told us in verse 6 that he's been crucified. Our old man was that tyrant that was crucified with Christ. But he says here, don't present the members of your bodies as weapons to that tyrant again. So here he's kind of got this idea of the tyrant, of, the, of sin, personified as a military leader, as like a general. Stop presenting your members as weapons to that old tyrant who is, let's call him General Sin. Like a military general who wants to use the parts of your body as his weapons. You see the sense? In verse 23 of chapter 6, he's going to personify sin again as an employer who pays wages. Where he says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what this employer pays, death. The same one who's a military general who wants to hijack the members of our bodies and use them for instruments, for weapons of destruction. So he's saying, don't put your body parts at the disposal of old general sin as you used to, to be used as weapons for unrighteousness. You remember in chapter 1 of Romans what the wrath of God comes down upon, why the wrath of God is revealed? Romans 1.18, 1 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That means an attitude that is ungodly, a lack of fear of the Lord, and unrighteousness of men. That's all the action that results from those who don't have a fear of the Lord. A willingness, a love for breaking the law of God. God says, my wrath comes down on all humanity because of unrighteousness. So here in chapter 6, do not trifle with presenting, putting forward the parts of your bodies to general sin to do the same thing that you were doing before that brought the wrath of God upon you. Don't do that. You, as new creations in Christ, do not need to offer the many parts of your body any longer as weapons for sin. Why not? Because general sin will only use the parts of your body as weapons against you, brother and sister. He will use yourself against you. He will seek to destroy you. And we saw last week in Numbers 33 that when the people of Israel left the um, inhabitants of the land in the land, they didn't drive them out as God told them. They were vexed. They were pricked in the eyes like with thorns, and they were pricked in the sides. The same thing will happen to us if we do not um, stop presenting our bodies, the members of our bodies, to old general sin. He will destroy us. He will seek to destroy our relationship with others. And if you belong to the Lord, your relationship with the Lord will be hindered as a result. You, at the least, will lose assurance of your own salvation if you continue presenting your members as weapons of unrighteousness to general sin. So the instruction is clear. Don't do it anymore. Just stop. The truth is the body of sin has been deprived of its absolute power, as we saw. Old man, sin, as our sin nature has been crucified with Christ, he no longer reigns. So don't give your members to him as you used to. You say, well, what does that mean? How, how can I stop doing that? Well, how do we avoid letting sin reign in our bodies as a whole, which is the instruction in verse 12? And how do we avoid giving the parts of our bodies to general sin in the first half of verse 13? He answers that with this simple instruction. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members, of, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So here's the second point. Practice a new habit. Stop with the old habit. Practice the new habit. And you notice here that he switches. Paul switches from the negative to the positive in the instruction. He says, present yourselves. In other words, yield yourselves, offer yourselves, dedicate yourselves, put yourselves at God's disposal. But I want you to notice he doesn't say, but present your members to God just yet. He doesn't. What's the first thing he says? Present yourselves to God. In other words, your whole selves, all of you, your spirit and your body. Does the Lord want all of us, brothers and sisters? He does. You remember uh, the most important commandment in the law. The, the Pharisees asked that question to Jesus, and they said, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, all of you, your members 
and your spirit, which has been made new. All of you, present it, offer it, yield it, put it at the disposal of the Lord God. That's the instruction. This is an amazing thought. Paul is saying that God wants to use all the components of our bodies, all our faculties, all our physical components, for himself to use as weapons for righteousness. See the contrast? God wants to use this as weapons, us and all of us as weapons for righteousness. And I I want you to notice the progression of this new habit because there are two steps given. He says, present yourselves to God first. Then the instruction is present your individual members to God. That order matters. You see, here, brother and sister, is the one and only strategy for not letting sin reign in your mortal body as a whole or in your individual members. God has a winning game day strategy for us, and it's right here. This is sanctification 101. Every part of you is to be sanctified, and how do you do that? By presenting yourself, offering yourself first to God. Don't offer him, don't offer yourselves to general sin anymore. Offer yourselves to the Lord God. There's no neutral position here. This is important too. If you don't give yourself entirely to God, you will give yourself to general sin, at least in part. The two are mutually exclusive, like we see in Romans 13, 14, where Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. These things are mutually exclusive. If you are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that language is like a garment, um, as as a garment, put him on. And when you do that, you are crowding out the lust of the flesh. You won't make a provision for it. There won't be room for it. Or Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You see? One or the other. We always must be actively doing one or the other. There is no neutral ground here in the Christian life. And notice also, he says, as being alive from the dead, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Spiritually dead people, this may surprise you, are not neutral toward God. They're actively moving away from God because they hate the Lord God and they love themselves. And so they pursue their own passions, their own pleasures in a direction that is 180 degrees away from God. You and I, brothers and sisters, when we were spiritually dead, were running away from the Lord God, just like the prodigal son was moving away from his father. You remember that account in Luke 15? Turn there with me for just a moment. Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, verse 11, Christ begins this parable like this. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Uh, And just stop there for a moment. What he's saying there is, I would rather, Father, that you were dead than alive. Inheritances were not distributed before the death of the father. I'd rather have your money than you. So you can tell how much he thinks of his father by asking this. 
So he divided to them, his sons, his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, notice that, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He wants to get as far away from the father as possible. And so he goes to a far country, and he wastes his living, or wastes his possessions, his father's possessions, with prodigal living. That means excess living. Verse 14, But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, if you're a good Jewish boy, you're not hanging out with pigs. Pigs are unclean. So this also tells you something about what he thinks of his Jewishness, what he thinks of his heritage, what he thinks of um, God and the rules that he has set for cleanness. And so he would gladly have filled his stomach, verse 16, with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And then verse 17, this is the turning point in the story, but when he came to himself, this is repentance. Where did this come from? We know in Scripture that repentance is a gift of God. This man, when he is in a desperate situation, he's run out of resources, he's spent all his father's money, there's a severe famine in the land. Who brings famine? The Lord. To bring pressure upon this young man, he realizes, he comes to himself and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and notice, go to my father. So he was dead spiritually, moving away from his father as far as he could, journeying to a far country, but then repentance comes by the grace of God and he wants to go back to his father. He wants to return to his father and he plans what he's going to say to his father. Father, I will arise, uh, excuse me, I will arise, go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I'm willing to relinquish my sonship. I'm not expecting any rights of sonship anymore. I know I'm not worthy. So he's humbling himself. Just make me like a hired servant. Make me like the lowest person in the house. Because then I would at least have food. So, you know the rest of the story. He comes to the Father, and the Father sees him while he's still a great way off because we know the Father draws all of us to himself through the Son, Jesus Christ. It's the Father who draws. So the Father meets him along the way. He wraps his arm around him, arms around him, kisses him, falls on his neck, embraces him with love, and grants him forgiveness. In fact, the Son doesn't even have a chance to make his full confession that he was planning to make. The father interrupts him and says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. They bring the fatted calf and they kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So here we have the picture of really salvation. This is all of us, apart from Christ, we were going away to a far country to get away from God. God in His infinite grace brings us the gift of repentance so that we turn in our minds to truth, to Him. And we say, I want to go to my Father now. And then you know the story of the older brother who represents the Pharisees in Israel who were always near the Lord, near the temple, 
near sacrifice, and yet they didn't have a heart for the Lord. Their, their words were in their mouth, and they spoke the right things, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And then you look at the end of this parable in verse 31. The father says to the older son, Son, you're always with me, and all I have is yours. Verse 32, it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. So this is the picture of presenting ourselves to God. And in this picture, in this parable, as I say, this is a picture of our salvation. All of us had this experience when we came to Christ. We turned to the Lord. We repented of our sin, we humbled ourselves, and we found forgiveness in Christ. But here's the point. Now that we are saved, the instruction doesn't change. We are to continue presenting ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. Continue. So we don't just present ourselves once to the Lord in salvation. He's saying this is a lifestyle now for the believer. Present yourselves continually. So here's the sense of Romans 6.13 again. Do not go on presenting your members as weapons of unrighteousness to general sin, but go on presenting yourselves regularly, routinely, as the new pattern of your life to God as being alive from the dead. Brother and sister, do you want victory in your daily life over sin? Do you want to know that you've been truly freed from the power of sin like the Scripture says is true? then do this. Present yourselves to God. Present your whole selves to God. And I, I want to illustrate this for you in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Would you turn with me to 2 Chronicles 20? Let's look at one um, glimpse into the life of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was king in Judah. And you may recall that after the kingdom split, there was a northern kingdom of Israel. There was a southern kingdom of Judah. Jehoshaphat was a king in the south in Judah. He is the son of Asa. And Jehoshaphat came to power in 914 B.C., so about 900 years before Christ, when he was 35 years old. We're told in the Scripture that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the ways of his father David. He didn't seek the Baals, which was a false god, false gods, but he sought the God of his father and he walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. Israel was being governed by a wicked ruler named Ahab. And we're told that as regards Jehoshaphat, his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. So I want you to, with that background, look with me at chapter 20. And let's read this account here together, what happens to Jehoshaphat, because there is a great threat that comes against him. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is called En Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. So I want you to notice right in this account that there is a great threat that is coming against King Jehoshaphat. 
the people of Ammon, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, and others beside them are um, conspiring to come together to battle against Jehoshaphat. And the response that we see in verse 3 is that Jehoshaphat feared. He immediately feared. But then notice that he set himself to seek the Lord. That's key. And he proclaimed a fast throughout Judah. In fact, he encouraged everyone in Judah to come together to seek the Lord. And so they did. Look at verse 5 now. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham your friend forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. But here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. So Jehoshaphat is praying over the nation of Israel and you see that he, he is praying and acknowledging God. He acknowledges his sovereignty. He acknowledges his covenant faithfulness. He acknowledges his goodness. And then I want you to notice verse 12 especially here. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. That is so important. Jehoshaphat recognized his and their weakness to withstand this great threat. He says, we have no power against this great multitude. We don't even know what to do in this situation, but this Next, but our eyes are on you. Remember that. Underline that if it's not in your Bible. And the Lord then answers this prayer through Jehaziel, a Levite. He says, look at verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, now this is Jehaziel speaking to the assembly, listen all, of, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours but God's. Wow. Definitive statement. This battle belongs to the Lord. And then he says, Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. So, there's a wonderful promise given here to a fearful people that this battle, God is going to win. 
This is God's battle to fight. It's not theirs. But their instruction is, I still want you to go to the battle. I want you to go against them. I want you to position yourselves. Look in verse 17. Position yourselves. What does that mean? Look at the Lord. Position yourselves. Um, Stand still. Stop all of your own efforts in this matter. And see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, God is going to fight this battle for you and he is going to win. Will you trust him in that? 18, and Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. This is a, um, an expression of extreme humility. He humbles himself greatly before the Lord. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now, verse 19. I want you to look at this with me. So what do we have here? We have the people have presented themselves to the Lord. There's a great threat. Jehoshaphat first presents himself to the Lord. He encourages the nation, present yourselves to the Lord. They do that. And now in verse 19, after they've presented themselves, what happens? Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So notice now the members, the parts of their bodies, in this case their mouths, are engaged. Engaged to what? To praise, to worship with um, the voice is loud and high. Verse 20, So they rose early in the morning, this is now the next morning, and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. So here is a reminder and an encouragement of what was said the day before. Trust in the Lord. Go into this battle knowing that it is his battle to win. You position yourselves with eyes on the Lord. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I were planning a battle strategy, I probably wouldn't put the marching band in front of the army. I mean, these are people who are defenseless, right? They have no weapons. They're playing musical instruments and they're leading the procession. These are the people who are going to get picked off first, right? Except if you are in God's army. In God's army, what's happening here? These instruments that they have are instruments of warfare. I want you to see this. The instrument of warfare that Israel is exhibiting here is their mouth, which is being used to praise the Lord before they even go into battle. Before they engage in the battle, they are praising the Lord. Now look what happens here. Verse 22, Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. This is the all-wise God we're dealing with here. He knows how to send a hornet into a camp and destroy everybody. He knows how to turn 
enemies who are conspiring against Judah against themselves so that they destroy themselves. And what are the people of Israel doing in all of this but simply coming to the battle and they are praising with their mouths, with the instruments, with the the weapons of their warfare. Verse 24, so when Judah came to a place and overlooked the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. The battle was done. The Lord had already won the battle. Israel just comes in, they see all the dead bodies, and then they spend three days collecting all of the spoils because there's so many. And then they bless the Lord, they praise Him, and then I want you to see when they return what they do here in verse 27. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. So notice now, more of their members are engaged in this warfare. They're singing and playing stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. Fingers, hands, feet, mouths, all engaged in the worship of God now that the battle's been won. So praising God going into the battle because of faith, trusting that the battle is won, praising God coming out of the battle because he has won the victory. See the model of God? Brothers and sisters, this is a historical event which actually happened, but it has a spiritual application for the church today. What is God's strategy for giving his people victory over their enemies? And when we think about our enemies, remember, there's three primary enemies that we talk about in the New Testament. It's the world, the flesh, which is our own flesh, and the devil. So think about this now in terms of victory over your own flesh when it knocks at the door and wants to destroy you. Old general sin wants to use your, your, your members as weapons against you. Present yourselves to God. Turn to Him. Position yourselves. Stand still. Stop trying to work in your own effort. Look at the Lord. And then worship worship Him. Humble yourself greatly before Him and praise Him with your mouths and with your hearts. This should be our reply every time an enemy comes up against us. When we feel the lust of our flesh and it's strong, Lord, I have no power against this great multitude. I don't even know what to do right now, but my eyes are on you. That's it. And the Lord's reply to us, all of us, is this. Do not fear, loved ones. The battle is not yours. It's mine. Position yourselves. Eyes on Christ. Stand still. Stop your own efforts and see the salvation of the Lord. And let that heart attitude lead us in praise as we sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord and then sing and praise Him after the victory is won, before the victory, after the victory. In other words, our lives should be surrounded with praise. All of it should be praise to the Lord. Now, I don't want you to think, and you may know this already if you've read this history, that Jehoshaphat always followed this battle strategy. He didn't. He was a sinner like you and I are. And he missed it sometimes. He was defeated at times. Um, he sought at one point in his career political strength and he allied himself with a wicked king Ahab in the north through a marriage alliance. 
He also joined that same wicked king in battle against another nation, the Syrians, and he almost lost his life as a result of it, but then he cried out to the Lord and God graciously delivered him. And then at the end of his reign, we're told that he allied himself with yet another wicked king in Israel named Ahaziah to make ships to go to Tarshish, and the Lord ended up destroying that work. So we don't always win the battles day by day, do we? But this is instruction that we are to learn from because we can win the battle day by day in God's grace if we follow this instruction. Present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. Now, in the New Testament, there are two ways primarily that we are called to present ourselves to God. The first is as priests, as priests. Now, listen to this. This is Romans 12. This was our call to worship this morning, or our, corporate, our call to worship. Romans 12. Verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, begging you by the mercies of God that you present, same word as in Romans 6, that you present your bodies, all of you, a whole body, as a living sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, when sacrifices were offered, they were whole burnt offerings. They offered the whole animal when Christ was offered as a sacrifice, when he sacrificed himself, he sacrificed all of himself, didn't he? On the cross at Calvary. We, as those who are united to Christ, are also to present our whole bodies as sacrifices to the Lord. And the irony here is that we are called living sacrifices, right? Sacrifices were given to death. We are living sacrifices that are always dying. 2 Corinthians 4.10, Paul says, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body, living sacrifice. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said, I die daily, living sacrifice. Jesus said it this way, take up the cross and follow me every day. And that is what makes us holy and acceptable to God. You see, we are holy. We've been declared holy and made holy by faith in Christ. He's cleansed us. But in our sanctification, in our daily lives, he calls us to live holy lives, and that is what is acceptable to the Lord. And he says this is a reasonable service. There's different translations for this, but the idea is the service of a priest. So you are a royal priesthood, in the New Testament, that's the language. We're all a priesthood. We're called a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we're not only the priest who is the offerer, the one offering the sacrifice, but we're also the offeree. We're offering ourselves as Christ offered himself to the Father, right? Look at verse 2 now of Romans 12. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So notice the progression. We first present our whole body to God, then present your members. Here, what's the member? The mind. The mind as a weapon of righteousness to God. And you say, how is my mind a weapon of righteousness to God? Well, as we set our minds on things above, where Christ is, as we're filling our minds with the Word of God, which is described as the sword of the Spirit, we are being trained in our minds to use the mind as a weapon of righteousness for the Lord. 
our mind is becoming able to wield the sword of God, which is His Word. So, we first present ourselves to God, always. Then we present our individual members as weapons of righteousness to Him. And we do this firstly as priests, like you see in Romans 12, but we also do it as soldiers, as soldiers. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. This is familiar territory, I think, for many of us, but I want us to look at this through the lens of one who is presenting his members as weapons of righteousness to the Lord. Listen to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And then here are the individual components now that we need to pay attention to. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Girded. This is referring to a belt. The belt was used to cinch, to tie down what was a loose tunic that soldiers would wear. So, so you wouldn't get encumbered in warfare. You had to cinch your tunic down with the belt. And so the Lord here is saying the core of your body, which is where the belt was, must be given to truth. It must be cinched by it. It must be held tightly by it. Give that member, the core, the essential part of your body, your bowels, if you will, to the Lord, to his truth. Then look what he says in 14 as well. He says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What did the breastplate cover? Well, it covered the vitals of the body, your lungs, your heart, these organs that you can't live without. And he says, the vitals of the body must be given to God's breastplate, which is what? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your vitals, your life is protected by the righteousness of Christ and not your own. Verse 15, he talks about shoes and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our feet, which is a, a way of saying our lifestyle, the where we go, what we do, our actions, must be given to the preparation of the gospel. And that both anchors us. These shoes had uh, like extra traction for a soldier so that he could engage in close hand-to-hand combat. This is going to give us traction so that we don't fall when we are attacked. And it's also going to carry us great distances with the gospel of Christ to share that news. And then he says in 16, the shield, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. A Roman's shield was a long, tall shield that covered his whole body. So our whole body must be given to the faith of Christ to protect against the fiery darts of the adversary who would seek to subdue our faith, who would seek to present doubt and take away our assurance of salvation. And the Lord says, submit your whole body to the shield of faith. And then two more. Look at the helmet. And take the helmet, verse 17, of salvation the helmet of salvation. We're now talking about the head as the member. The head is what? Our thinking. It's our minds. They must be given to the salvation of God and to His promises concerning salvation. This is our only defense against the lies and the subtleties of the devil. And then the sword. 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our hands are that they, those which handle the sword. Our hands must be given to the Word of God as our only offensive weapon to attack our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you see, the members of our bodies are to be given to, what's he saying here? Given to truth, to righteousness, to the gospel, to faith, to the salvation of God, and to the Word of God. Where do we find all those things? In the Scriptures. In the Scriptures. By the Spirit's illumination. So the knowledge of the truth starts in the head. It permeates the heart. It mobilizes the will. We are presenting all of ourselves to the Lord as priests and as soldiers of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, you therefore must endure or share in hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Soldiers are not fighting for themselves. Soldiers are fighting for the one who enlisted them, for the true general, general holiness, general righteousness. And brothers and sisters, there is in Scripture a member that is described as one of the smallest members of our bodies, but that has great influence and can do great destruction, great damage to ourselves and to others. And that is the tongue as James describes it in James chapter 3. And I just want to look at a couple of things here, just on this one member. We'll close. James chapter 3. James gives examples of <clears throat> small things that can have a very large effect. He talks about um, putting a bit in a horse's mouth to turn a big body of an animal with just such a small thing like a bit. He says, look at the ships in verse 4. Although they're so large and driven by fierce winds, they're turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. And he says this, the tongue is the same way. Even so, the tongue is a little member that boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Verse 8, no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude, the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. You see what he's saying here? He's saying the tongue is an unruly evil. No one can tame it. No man can tame the tongue. And it's not possible that one uh, speak blessing and speak cursing at the same time. The tongue is either given to evil or it is given to what is good and right. And brother the, and sister, the message this morning is that the members of our bodies though they were given over entirely to sin, like the tongue, they have been redeemed by Christ. And they are now to be used in the service of God as His weapons for righteousness. That's why the tongue is talked about in the Psalms so many times. The mouth, the lips, the tongue. 
as that which can do what is right now. Listen to Psalm 37, verse 30. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. So, as we have been born again, the law of God has been written on our hearts. That is what governs us along with the Spirit of God so that when we speak now, we are governed by the Spirit in our speaking, in our speech. The Lord said that out of a good treasure of his heart, a man brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So once we are born again, we have a new heart. We are able now for the first time to bring good things from our lips, from our mouths in the sight of God. Proverbs 15, 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. In other words, a wholesome tongue is that which can feed others as a fruit tree can. Or it can provide the healing leaves, medicinal leaves that a tree can to others. It is a blessing to others. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are called to as we are presenting ourselves to God. He is now sanctifying even our tongues, our speech, that it would be a weapon for His righteousness. Ephesians 4.29, this instruction, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, not even one but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. You see, how does this happen? This happens in Christ. This is part of what it means to be in Christ as we are presenting ourselves daily, giving ourselves to Him practically by the study and meditation of His Word and prayer and fellowship. As we are doing that, we are learning Christ. We are hearing His voice. He is teaching us and training us how to do everything, including how to speak. Every word of God is pure. He never misspeaks even one word. He calls us to let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouths, but only that which is useful to building others up. That's a framework that is very uh, revolutionary. I mean, everything I say is to be used for building others up and promoting the glory of God? Yes. Let your speech always be with grace, Paul says to the Colossians, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. Let grace be like a seasoning of salt that's sprinkled over everything that we say with each other. Let the tongue be redeemed from its corruption where before it only spewed forth vileness and putrid things in the sight of God. Hmm. Is Christ not our example, brothers and sisters? His speech was always full of grace. Full of grace and truth. Psalm 45 speaks of the Messiah and says, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured out on poured out on your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Isaiah in chapter 50, same idea. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Hmm. Christ, when he spoke, they said, it's not this Joseph's son. And they marveled at all the gracious things that he said. Hmm. The officers said, said, no man ever spoke like this man. Do you want to know what the redeemed speak of regularly? We speak of the Lord. We speak of his greatness and what he has done for us. 
We can say with the psalmist in Psalm 66, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what He has done for my soul. Or in Psalm 71, 15, My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day, for I do not know their limits. So what are we saying? Two things. Stop presenting your members as weapons of unrighteousness to general sin. That life is over. He has been crucified with Christ. And here is God's strategy for victory on a daily basis that will never fail you or me. Start presenting ourselves to God and continue presenting ourselves to God. Resolve to present your whole self to God. Dedicate yourself to Him. Give yourself to Him, mind, body, and soul, so that when trouble comes knocking, we can be like Jehoshaphat and humble ourselves greatly before the Lord and say, Lord, there's great trouble here, but I, and I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And the Lord says, march into battle singing, praising me before the victory even comes because I surely will bring the victory. And then once I brought the victory, praise me again. Loved ones, the battle has been won in Christ. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, that is, O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord has promised us that he will drive out our enemies one by one as we are in this spiritual Canaan, as we are entering into the Lord's promised land. He is going to drive these enemies out one at a time. He's not going to do it all at once, but he will do it for us as we give ourselves to him and walk in the power of his might in obedience to him. May it be so for all of us this week and always. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you would show yourself mighty by using the weakness of a worm as I am to bring about your mighty purposes. Father, you can do all things. You can and you do all things well. Lord, our confidence and our trust is in you. Father, forgive us for our arrogance when we think that we can handle things when we can just manage on our own and when we look to ourselves. God, help us to repent, turn away from that, and to turn to you and have our eyes fixed on you, giving ourselves to you as slaves of righteousness, giving ourselves to you as the commander and general of the righteous army. Father, you are worthy of all praise. This is all about you. This is about changing a people to be like your son, which brings you incredible glory as the nations of the world would look on and say, truly God is among them. I pray, Lord, that people would say that of us too, that they would know by our speech and by our way of living, these people have been with Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.